When I was at the age that most of you are in this room at a conference just like this back east, uh, it became very important for me to make a conscious commitment to Jesus. Uh, that really was my particular decision at that point. And I was at an age where it made sense to me and I understood the implications of becoming a follower of Christ and not a follower of something else. I asked myself, what would be the best way to do a first session with you this evening? Neil had written and asked if I might spend this first time uh, in something of an introductory uh, talk so that you would get to know a little bit more about Gail and about me. And I thought to myself, well, that would be a good chance to cull out of 75 years of life a few things that I've done right that look good and would might, might be impressive to at least two or three of you. But I, I'm not sure I would spend your time well if I simply talked about me. What I'd much rather talk about is, I guess, the way Jesus has done his work in me through other people. And that's a very, very important subject for any of us to have in the course of our lives. Right now, I would like to impress upon you that statistics show that each of you probably has in the neighborhood of 55 to 60 more years to live. That's a lot of years. And some of the most important preparations are being done right now at this age to determine the course of the next 50 or 60 years. And looking back on all those years, now I realize that along the journey of life, in the waypoints, those, those special moments, uh, there were people who dropped into my life and God used them to say something I needed to hear or to do something I needed done. And at that particular point, life was never the same. There are a number of places in the scriptures where you have, an, you have a story that would illustrate the point that I'm trying to make. My favorite story comes from deep in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 3. The chapter begins this way, and I'll just quote it for you. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and there was no frequent vision. Now, those are kind of old words, and you have to read them about 40 times to ask, what's really being said here? The answer is that the culture of that time was spiritually dry. And there were very, very few people who could be relied upon to speak with any kind of power or integrity about who God was, about what it meant to be a person who followed after God's laws and exhibited his character. There was nobody around talking that way. And the question became, is it always going to be this way, or is God going to do something in the life of some person who will make a difference in the lives of other people? In the tabernacle of that time, where Israel came to worship on a regular basis, there was a high priest, and his name was Eli. The first thing we know about Eli in the first two chapters was he was a rotten father. He raised two sons who became utterly corrupt in their adulthood, and they did virtually everything they could to abuse and bully the people of Israel for their own purposes. So you have an Eli, who's a real loser, but he's the head of the institutional religion of the time. You would think 
But God would finally say to Eli, I'm through with you. You're out of here. But that's not what happens. And when you get to the third chapter, there's this very interesting encounter between the old guy, Eli, and a very young boy whose name is Samuel. Samuel is living at the tabernacle. He's kind of a, a boy servant to the old priest. And one night when Samuel is asleep, he hears a noise like no other noise he's ever heard. He runs into the bedroom of Eli and says, did you call? Eli says, no, go back to bed. A little while later, the sleeping boy hears the noise again. He rushes to Eli's bedroom. Did you call? No, go back to bed. This happens a third time. This time, Eli gets it. Something is happening here that needs to be highly respected. And Eli says, when Samuel says, did you call the third time? He says, no, Samuel, maybe what you hear is the voice of God. Maybe God is trying to speak into your life. And if he is, the best way you can respond is to say, quote, speak, Lord, your servant is hearing. So Samuel goes back to bed. Sure enough, third time, there's a noise. This time Samuel does not run to Eli's bedroom. He simply says, speak, Lord, your servant hears you. And God begins to speak into this boy's life some of the most powerful words in all of the Older Testament about how he wants Samuel to become his prophet, to speak to the people of Israel. Remember that opening word, no frequent vision or word from God? Now the word of God is going to begin to speak through Samuel. Now let me make this proposal to you. Eli helps Samuel hear the voice of God. Implication. If there is no Eli, there is no Samuel. If there is no Samuel, soon there will be no Israel. It's a very important moment in the history of Israel's life. And everyone has to be what God wants them to be at that moment. Now here's that quick takeaway of that story for you and me. Who are the Eli's in our lives? Who are the people, male or female, who enter our lives at key moments and help us to understand something God might be wanting to say to us that we would not have understood if the Eli had not been in place. I grew up in a home that one would label as severely dysfunctional. My father was a pastor. He was a good pastor. He was a good preacher. But he had never learned how to treat his wife with respect or affection or care or love. He just didn't know how to lead a family. He really didn't know how to be a father to his two sons. He admitted that to me many, many years later. I didn't know what to do with children, he said. So I just kind of gave it all to your mother. And my mother, you could say, raised us. So in my home, I was not able to learn a lot about how God speaks into life because it just didn't happen behind the front door of our home. I needed a whole string of Eli's 
And they came one by one, men, women, couples. And they've been there for all these many, many years. And each in exquisite timing brought a message into my life about something that if I would grab it, became a part of who I've become over these many years. Again, let me tell you why I'm saying this, not simply to entertain you, but because I, I'm hoping that by telling you a little bit of my story, you will begin to clearly see how Eli's come into your lives, and you will have a similar experience to mine. I may surprise you if I tell you who some of my Eli's were. The first of them was a woman that I knew when I was age four, five, and six. I'll just simply call her tonight the storyteller. She was one of these women, you meet them every once in a while, usually more women, but some men, who know how to put a story out there on the table for you, and it just excites you beyond belief. And she was one of these women. There were a whole number of children in the area where I lived who would have killed every day to go to her house. Because the minute you got there and she welcomed you through the door of her home, she was on to a story. I can visualize, even as I'm talking to you right now, sitting on the floor of her living room, sitting in a circle with other children my age. She'd be sitting on a chair and she'd say, I want to tell you the story of. And then would come one of the great stories of the Bible. She not only knew how to tell a story from the Bible, but she knew how to tell it a second time, and a third time, and a tenth time, and a twentieth time, and every time you were just as thrilled to hear it as the first time. That's quite a storyteller. With her, we learned all the stories of the Older Testament. We learned all the stories of the New Testament. And then when the Bible story was over, she had a second story. She would tell us the story of great champions that had followed after Christ down through the centuries from the time of Jesus up to now. Men and women who went all over the world bringing the gospel to people. Men and women sometimes who died because they were obedient to the call of God. And then when she filled, finished with that story, she had a third story to tell us. Stories about children like us who were facing childlike dilemmas and problems and temptations and all that kind of stuff. And each story was instructive about the kind of boys and girls we should be. I look back on those many years, or those three years, when I knew the storyteller, and I realized that there is a sense in which she taught me more about the Bible than any other person I have ever met. There wasn't a story in the scriptures over those three or four years that we did not learn, and learn well. And to this day, whenever I tell a story, if I get up to give a talk someplace, I can just see the storyteller telling me the story for the first time, drilling it down deep inside of me. Sometimes I like to say to people that I have a story-driven faith. Anytime I begin to wrestle with some implication of what it means to follow Jesus, uh, I know other people who turn to Bible verses essentially in the New Testament, and that's great. You know, like if you want to talk about the confession of sin, people will say 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's what we call a propositional statement. But if you talk to me about confession of sin, I'll probably take you back to the story of David the king, 
when he was guilty of adultery and murder, and he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, how Nathan got deep into David's heart and made him face what he had done, no cover-up. That's a story. And that's the way my faith has always been lived and grown, through the stories. I would suggest to you, if you're a relatively new follower of Christ, if you haven't had the opportunity in these years of your life to really engage with the Bible, one of the most important things you want to do over the course of your life is learn the stories. Learn what happened. How God intervened in the story. What was the result? Who changed? Who didn't? What were the consequences? Because a story-driven faith goes deep in our souls. It becomes a very powerful instrument for God to use in helping us to grow as men and women who are Christ followers. If the storyteller was important in helping me to understand the kind of man I was to become, there was a, a second person who came into my life as an Eli. I'm simply going to call her the observer and the thinker. She was my grandmother. She lived in the city of Brooklyn in New York. I used to visit my grandmother all the time. And every day it, I visited, it seemed like the same things happened. I'd get up early in the morning and there would be my grandmother in the kitchen fixing breakfast. It was always toast and all the butter and honey I wanted. Toast and honey. It's hard to feature a better breakfast than that. And so we would eat our toast and honey together. And then my grandmother would take out this enormous black covered leather Bible. And she would open up to a book like Colossians or Ephesians or Philippians or part of the book of Romans. And when I was four and five, she used this Bible to teach me to read. And I would sit on one side of the breakfast table and I would stumble through the reading and every paragraph, Grandma would stop me and she'd explain to me what Paul was trying to say. I hated this. I mean, I didn't know what was going on. I mean, how do you understand at the age of four and five what the book of Colossians is about? But my grandmother would go into the most serious descriptions. And, and then when she got through after an hour, then we would pray. And this was no, Lord, no just simple little two or three minute prayer. This was a prayer. We prayed around the world, virtually every country, missionaries by the dozens. The prayer probably took about 40, 45 minutes. Now, you may ask yourself, why would a five or six-year-old boy endure all this? The answer is what came next. Because my grandmother always planned the rest of the day to be a trip to the city. We would get on the subway. We would go into the middle of Manhattan. We would visit skyscrapers and factories and museums and parks and statues every day. There was a place that she wanted to take me. And when we get there, she would say, look at that building. Isn't that a beautiful building? Do you suppose God loves that building? What do you think the architect had in mind when he created the building to look like that? Or look at that statue. Who do you think that person was on the back of that horse? Do you know anything about him? Let me tell you his story. This is why he's so great. This is why he's so noble. We'd go to a park. Why is this park laid out the way it is? What do you think the 
person who was the architect of this park had in mind when he or she laid the park out like this. I loved those days. My grandmother would say to me, always look for the glory of God in the city. Look at the face of every person. Imagine what they're thinking, what they're struggling with. Pray for them. My grandmother taught me to love the world that God made. My grandmother taught me that if you look at each thing, you will always be able to discern the purpose God had when he called somebody to bring that thing into meaning. All my life I've been a curious person, always asking questions, always wondering why. Why did that happen? Because my grandmother instilled those kinds of questions, the thinker, the observer, in those earliest days, always challenging me to ask the question, why? What does it mean? There was a third Eli in my life who came a few years later. I call her the book lady. She was the librarian in the school where I attended. She began to notice that I came to the library quite a lot, that I was the last person to leave at the end, the end of the evening. I would often say to her, couldn't we keep the doors open just 10 more minutes? I've got to finish what this book is saying. And she came to understand <coughs> that a most important part of my life was found in books. One day, I'll never forget this, she came to me and she said, Gordon, I know how much you love the library. And I've done something that really is against the rules, so you mustn't tell anybody that I've done this. But I've made you a key to the front door of the library. You can come to the library anytime you want and leave whenever you're ready. What a gift to have this library, the key to the library. And if you're an introvert like I am, you can go there alone, sit in your favorite chair, and no one will bother you. <laughs> I loved the book lady. She was the one who taught me to always read biographies. Read about the great women and the great men down through the centuries. Read about Christian people, but read sometimes beyond Christianity into the lives of men and women who did great things and did it for God's purposes, even when they didn't know they were doing it. But always read the biographies. Always come as close as you can to the people who made history down through the centuries. She was the first person to teach me to love poetry, to see the skill that comes when the poet puts words on paper, or now on the screen. She introduced me to the English writer Matthew Arnold, who wrote some of the great 19th century poems during the Romantic, in the Romantic area. The poem, for example, that he wrote about his father. When in the course, excuse me, who are the men who swivel, or I have to start this all again, what is the course of the life of men upon the earth who gather and squander, who eat and are hungry, who then gather and perish, die? And no one asks who or what they may have been any more than he asks what wave on the midmost ocean of the moonlight solitude mile has come and foamed 
and gone. If in the paths of this world stones may have wounded your feet, toil or dejection have tried your spirit, of that we saw nothing. To us, you were cheerful, helpful, and firm. Or she said one day, here's a poem I want you to memorize, not because it has a lot of meaning, but because in it you get the beauty of the words, the sounds that come when the English language is spoken so well. In Zanon did Kupla Khan, a stately pleasure dome decree were out the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round and here were gardens bright with sinuous rills where there bare an incense bearing tree. Or get to know Robert Frost, the great New England poet. Two roads diverge in the yellowed wood, and sorry I could not travel both. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could, and then took the other because it was grassy and wanted wear. I shall be telling this someday with a sigh. Two roads diverge in a wood, and I, I took the road less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. The book lady was my Eli. She taught me the beauty of language, the power of books, the joy of reading, and it's made all the difference. So if there was a storyteller and an observer and thinker and a book lady, then the fourth Eli that entered my life in my teen years was a coach, a man who loved God, who loved to build the lives of women and male athletes, character and the ability to win on the track on the cross-country course. I was a scrawny 135-year-old kid at the age of 15. I wanted to play football because I had this dream that one day I'd get this great leather jacket and I could put it over some girl's shoulder. <laughs> and uh, the football people didn't think I had it, and one day the coach of the football team called the coach of the track team and he said, you know, we've got this scrawny kid over here. He's fast, but he doesn't like pain. <laughs> so we're willing to trade him to the track department for nothing. <laughs> make, a, make a decision quickly. We need his pads. And so I got transformed to the track and the cross country department. And it took a few weeks. The coach put me into a few simple races. And one day he said to me, you know, I think we could make a runner out of you, a better than average runner. I want you to think about what it means to be coached so that you will trust me and you'll do what I ask you to do and you'll be willing to push through the barrier of pain. If you will do that, you could become a great athlete. Sometime down the line, he invited me to his home for dinner and after he and his wife and I had dinner and the plates were cleared away from the table, he reached behind him into the bookshelf and he brought down a school notebook with my name on the front cover. He turned to the back page. I remember this vividly. It said June 1957, 40 months in the future. And there was a list of races and time events trials that he wanted me to run and the times he expected me to finish. I looked at those times and I said, no way. I said, coach, I'll never be able to run that fast. He said, watch. 
And he began to turn that notebook back page by page. And I saw at the top of each page one of the months between today and 40 months from now. And each page had the times of races I would run during that month and time trials until we got to the front page of the book for this month and the times I should be running then. And then it hit me. This man had built a spreadsheet for my athletic career. He had a vision of how a person goes from here to here, like a staircase, over 40 months. You could say that he loved me in a certain way, that he wanted me to get here. Kind of like Jesus picked a bunch of men that no one thought much would amount to anything. And he said, you're here right now, but if you will follow me, this is what you're going to be like in 40 months. That's what an Eli does. That's what a coach does. And over those months, as I progressed along that plan, I made it to the place where he planned for me 40 months later, but it took a coach. And you know, the powerful thing about that story is that he not only was making a runner out of me, he was preparing me for the day when I would become a man. And I would follow the same procedure in all of the disciplines of life that would carry me through my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, my 50s, and 60s, and to this day are still carrying me. To this day, there are moments when I have to face a decision or some event in life, and I hear the voice of the coach somewhere back here speaking to me through that plan as to the kind of athlete he wanted me to be. That's what an Eli does. The fifth Eli in my life was a professor. He was a godly man. He taught the Bible in my school. Sometimes we teenage boys had very little appreciation for the kind of Eli this man was. He was a strong man. He was brilliant. He was well known in his time. And the fact that he took some of his valuable time to teach the Bible to a bunch of teenage boys, it baffles me now when I think about it. He taught us the book of Romans, large parts of the Gospels. Oh, by the way, he also taught us how important it was to memorize the scriptures and jam them into your head, to your heart, when you're young. Over the course of one of those years, he made us all memorize about 300 scripture passages. And for him, memorization was not only just saying it correctly, but you had to have all the punctuation, all the spelling perfect, or if he caught you, you rewrote the verse or the chapter 10 times. We kept these verses on index cards in our shirt pockets. And all day long, we'd be speaking these verses to one another. And the way we said them was this. Take Psalm 46.1. Big G, God, is, a very, is our refuge and our strength. Semicolon. A very present help in time of trouble. Period. Big T, therefore, comma, we will not fear, though the earth be removed and the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Period. Every verse like that. I can remember as a teenage boy saying, why do we have to do this? You know, what's the point? But over the years, there are very few of those 300 verses I've forgotten. 
two years about this two years ago about this time I went to the doctor because I was having some strange symptoms in my body that I felt needed to be looked at. The doctor finally said, let's do an MRI in your head. The next day I did the MRI and a couple of hours later the phone rang and it was my doctor. He said, Gordon, I'm sorry to tell you, but we've discovered there's a tumor about the size of an egg in the back of your head. We don't think it's malignant but it's got to come out. You sit there and you feel punched in the stomach. You know what the first thing was that came to my mind? Big G, God, is our refuge and strength, comma, or period, capital T, therefore, comma, we will not fear. And I thought to myself, how kind of a man some 60 years ago, to put into my head the very words that would calm me completely and help me to hold things together when it came to a moment like that. That's why we memorize scripture. That's why, as the Old Testament writer said, we hide the word of God into our hearts. Because there comes a moment and there will come one of those moments sooner or later when we will need to retrieve something deep within us that will explain to us what's going on and give us the courage to keep pushing and to give us the meaning as to what we do about this. If we waste time when we're young not packing this kind of stuff into us, then we will lack what we need years from now when the going gets tough. The sixth Eli in my life was a theologian. He's long dead now, but he was a professor at a seminary here in California. He was the speaker for a week in a conference just like this. Every morning he got up and gave a, a one-hour lecture to we college students on the life of Christ and particularly the significance of his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascendance into heaven. He was not an easy man to understand, but he had incredible authority. And I worked hard to appreciate everything he'd come to say. And when it came right down to the bottom line, the most important thing he said that I heard that week is, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. The tomb is empty. He lives. And for the first time in all those years of knowing the Bible, of being the son of a Christian minister, of going to meetings, so many meetings they just stacked upon it. But for the first time, it became clear inside of me the implications that Christ had risen from the dead. If Christ had risen from the dead, Christ is God. Everything he said is true. Everything is reliable. Everything is then a claim upon my life. And at the end of that week, on a Friday night, I went out for a long walk in the moonlight by myself. It was not a spectacular moment, but I remember just quietly looking skyward, because where else could you look? Saying quietly out loud, Jesus, I don't think my life is really worth much of a dime at all, but if you want it, it's yours. I choose this night to be a follower of Jesus. 
I wish I could tell you tonight that everything in life from that moment forward has gone perfectly. It's gone well, but there have been some dark moments. There have been some stumbles and falls. There are times that I really wish I could forget, but I've always been walking in the direction of Jesus from that moment forward. Because an Eli of a man like that was able to reach me at a certain moment and bring the gospel right down to where I understood it so that it all made sense. There was another Eli in my life, and I'll simply call him the mentor. He was a single man several years older than me. I spent a couple of years sharing an apartment with him while I was in university. He was a good man. He loved God. And he knew that he had a young friend who was very undisciplined, very disorderly, someone who needed to learn how to make out a checkbook, keep his clothes clean, clean up after himself. He taught me all of these things. I remember each morning when he got up and he got dressed, that he would sit and he would open his Bible and he would read from it. He was one of the first people I ever saw who had a daily worship experience. And from him, I learned the basic core conduct of what it meant to be a Christian man. One day, he came home and he said to me, you know, Gordon, I've met a woman who I think would make you an incredible wife. I said, tell me about her. He began to describe her. 15, 20 minutes, I'm sitting there going, I didn't know any person like this could exist. She seemed to me a, to be a good combination of Elizabeth Taylor, of Mother Teresa, <laughs> Betty Crocker. Uh, I finally said to him, I've got to meet this woman. Do you think you could ever introduce us? He said, well, let's call her and see if she'd have breakfast with us. It's 10 o'clock at night. Picks up the phone, calls her. She said, sure, come on over at 8 in the morning. I'll make us all three breakfast. The next morning, we knocked the front door of her apartment, and the door opened. I shall never forget that moment. The smell of fresh apple pastry came out the door. I was in love in 15 seconds. <laughs> and there was this woman with this incredible smile. And we came in, and within minutes, I really was in love. Three weeks later, we were engaged. Four months later, we were married. That's, that's getting close to 54 years ago. About two weeks before we were to get married, my mentor took me out to dinner. Looking back now, I know why he did this. He was scared to death as to what he'd done. I'm sure that he understood that this woman was mature enough to marry me, but was I mature enough to marry her? And after we had ordered our meal, he suddenly got very serious. He said these words, Gordon, God has given to you an incredible woman to marry. He means to say some many important things through her. And then he took his finger and he waved it in my face. And with the firmest possible words, he said three times, listen to her, listen to her, 
listen to her because you're not a good listener. <laughs> you laugh, but he was right. He was right, first of all, that I wasn't a good listener. I came across as an arrogant, conceited, know-it-all young man who had the answers to everything. And when I didn't have the answers, I'd bluff you into thinking I did. I didn't want to listen to anybody in those days. Gordon, listen to her. Those were some of the most important words anyone has ever said to me in all of my life. And from that moment forward, I began to learn what a poor listener I was and how significant it would be if I began to listen to the Eli's around me. But in this case, if I learned how to listen to the one I was going to marry. Now as the years have gone by, I've understood the importance, the significance of that advice. Because over and over and over again, Gail has spoken to me in the small and large issues of life day after day after day. And over and over and over again, I've discovered that the things that she says to me are things that God really wants me to hear. You see, God speaks to us through scripture. But I'm convinced that God speaks as much, if not more, to each of us through our friends. And in my case, as it will be for many of you, the person we give our lives to. Which brings me to my last Eli. And that is my friend and lover, Gail, who's with me tonight. We've been married for 53 plus years now. We've learned down through those years the challenge of two people, the Bible calls sinners, coming together and linking their lives into an experience that we believe should last as long as life lasts. You have this relationship with another person. It's not just another friend, it's, it's a special friend. It's not just some engaging person in the world, but it's a lover. And I remember the morning that we were to get married. I went out on the front lawn of the home where I was staying for the night. I thought, gee, it, it's a good day to read the Bible. And I opened up the Bible, and the passage I chose <coughs> was Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul writes to a group of men in the city of Ephesus who were brand new Christians. Brand new! They didn't have Christian homes. They didn't have a long life in Christian churches. They didn't have Christian books. They didn't know all the Bible stories. These were pagan men, new followers of Christ. They have to learn how to be good husbands, good fathers. And Paul says to them, quote, Husbands, love your wives in the way that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might present it to God by the washing of the water of the word. I read those words that morning. I was astonished. For the first time it really began to hit me. If I'm going to marry Gail today, what I'm saying in public is I'm willing to die for her. I'm willing to pour everything I have and everything I am into her life so that she grows 
to be the kind of woman God wants her to be. And I began to learn the assumption went the other way, that she would be willing to die for me and that she would pour everything she had and everything she was <laughs> into my life so that somehow I could become, because of her, a greater man of God. Many of you will come to the moment when you will make a choice like that to bring an Eli into your life in the marriage equation. Some of you may choose to stay single all of your life and your intimacy in that sense will be with a close cadre of friends. But when you have a close cadre of friends or when you engage in a marriage relationship, always remember, you have come into the fellowship of some Eli's through whom God wants to speak things to you that otherwise you would never hear. So here I am before you tonight, hoping that in the next two days, Gail and I can get acquainted with as many of you as possible. But if I have any credibility, if I have any value to bring to you, it's not because of who I am, but because over these years, God brought into my life some very special people, like Eli came into the life of Samuel. I learned to look for them, and when I noticed that they were there, I learned to listen to them and to thank God for them. Now here's the final takeaway. I've listed for you seven or eight Eli's. I could have gone on and labeled three or four more, but to your relief, I, I, I will put it to an end here. But I want to throw this question at you. Would it be worthwhile for a few minutes in, early in this week to try to list the people who have played Eli in your life. Go all the way back to your earliest days. Who were they? What kind of a contribution did they make? How did you handle what they gave to you? How are you different today? Because those Eli's showed up at that particular moment. Oh, by the way, you might also want to ask, have I ever thanked them for what they did? And then my last question of the evening is this. Is there somebody to whom you should be an Eli? A small child, a friend, someone you work with or study with? Who is God planning to speak to that person? Or excuse me, how is he going to do it through you? You come to a conference like this for a week. There's no telling how many powerful ways God wants to speak into the hearts and minds of every one of us in this room over these next several days. It's a perfect place for God to talk. Make sure you're listening. And make sure you're prepared to hear whatever he says through the Eli's that he sends to you. Let's pray. We look back through the Bible, Lord, and we see men and women that were powerfully used at various times, sometimes in surprising moments,
And when they did what you called them to do, everybody around them changed. And I believe, Lord, that kind of thing still goes on to this day. You have brought this amazing group of people to a beautiful place like Hume Lake for a week to have fun, to get rested, to make friends. But I have to believe, Lord, that among all these things, the most important reason you have brought us here is so that you could speak to us and that when we leave here, something about each of us will be different than when we came. I pray, Father, that when you speak and however you speak, we will hear. So I pray for that to happen. In Jesus' name, amen. God be with you.